you know, I just ate so much food. And dude, I stayed up so late last night writing. Once in a while that happens. You just, you, you, I, I, stay up like, uh, stay up like till 4 or 5 a.m. 4, 4, what was it? 4.45 a.m. Writing. I'm just getting it out of my head. Because I get inspired. And usually what it comes from is if I accidentally take a nap too late in the evening and then when when it when it comes time to shut down at the end of the night I'll get in bed but I'm not tired enough so my head's kind of still going and then but I'm in bed so I'm not really being stimulated by anything sometimes I am though sometimes my head will be somewhere else completely other than the podcast I'm listening to like that tracks running and you know what's weird when that happens it's sometimes the tone of their conversation I can tell is uh creating the tone for my thoughts so i'm having my own completely different thoughts the tone of their conversation is making me think in that same kind of rhythm and pattern and uh feel vibe you know what i'm saying it's real never expressed that out loud but anyway this is uh david c funder's personality puzzle eighth eighth edition i can tell i'm gonna be tongue-tied already Part four, the hidden world of the mind. The psychoanalytic approach. Elliot Spitzer was an aggressive and effective crime fighter. As a district attorney, attorney general, and then as the governor of New York, he attacked securities fraud, internet scams, predatory lending, and environmental pollution. A special focus was prostitution, which he called modern-day slavery. He agreed with feminist groups that it was unfair to punish only women while ignoring their customers, and he signed a law that increased the penalty for hiring a prostitute. On February 13, 2008, Governor Spitzer met quote-unquote Kristen, who worked for an organization called Emperor's Club VIP in room 871 at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., she had traveled there with the understanding that he, quote, would be paying for everything. Train tickets, cab fare from the hotel and back, minibar or room service, travel time, and hotel, end quote. Afterward, he paid her $4,300 in cash, which included $1,000 as a deposit toward future services. Sadly for the governor, his attempts to conceal the source of the cash made his bank suspicious which led to an investigation, and all was revealed in the New York Times on March 10, 2008. A week later, he resigned. Governor Spitzer's career was over. How could something like that happen? How could a dedicated and official opponent of crime and prostitution turn out to be a customer of exactly the same business he so vigorously opposed? His case is not unique. In 2003, William Bennett, conservative pundit, would-be morals teacher and author of the Book of Virtues, was forced to acknowledge a long-standing gambling habit that lost him millions of dollars. In 2006, a Southern Baptist church pastor who spoke out against gay marriage 
and urged homosexuals to reject their, quote, sinful, destructive lifestyle, end quote, was arrested for propositioning a plainclothes police officer in an area of Oklahoma City known for male prostitutes flagging down cars. Every few weeks, it seems the news reveals yet another self-righteous politician or crusading preacher who turns out to be a regular practitioner of the same vices he or she made a career of denouncing. Such strange and paradoxical misbehaviors almost beg for a psychologist to explain them. It might surprise you, therefore, to learn that most psychologists have surprisingly little to say about cases like these. More than 75 years ago, Henry Murray complained that much of psychology is over-concerned with recurrences, with consistency, with what is clearly manifested, the surface of personality, with what is conscious, ordered, and rational. It stops short at the point precisely where a psychology is needed, the point at which it begins to be difficult to understand what is going on. For most of psychology, including pretty much all of the part of personality psychology that this book has covered so far, Murray's complaint remains valid today. However, one approach has thought from the very beginning to explain thoughts and behaviors that are strange and difficult to understand. The approach is psychoanalysis, originally based on the writings of Sigmund Freud. Can you believe that? It's unconstitutional. You're making me unhappy. You're not making anybody happy with that. Oh, you know what I just realized? What the fuck? This water is disgusting. It's got like a ring of mold all around the lip where I was putting my lips on it. What the fuck? Dang, that could have been some high quality ASMR filling up this jar. I'm still gonna drink the water. I'm out of water. I don't know about you guys, but I gotta get to the store. I'm about to be drinking tap water, and I don't like to do that. I like to fill up those big five-gallon jugs. I'm one of those guys. All right, let's see here. Psychoanalysis is more than just, quote, Freudian, end quote, psychology. However, Freud changed his mind about important matters several times during his career, and many psychologists have continued to translate, interpret, and extend his ideas for nearly a decade. Their work addresses the underground part of the mind, the part that is ordinarily hidden and, in some cases, seemingly contradictory, irrational, or absurd. The next two chapters present a survey of classical, revised, and modern psychoanalysis. Chapter 10 provides a general introduction to Freud and to psychoanalytic thought, and its view of the structure and development of the mind. It also says a bit about the workings of the unconscious mind, including how defense mechanisms protect people from feeling more anxiety than they can bear. Chapter 11 brings psychoanalysis into the present day by surveying some prominent neo-Freudian theorists, including Alfred Adler, Carl Jung, and Karen Horney, along with a bit of recent relevant empirical research, and modern psychoanalytic theorizing. Freud is far from dead. 
we shall find. He lives on in a surprising number of ways. Basics of Psychoanalysis Contents Freud himself Key ideas of psychoanalysis Psychic determinism Psychic conflict and compromise Mental energy Controversy Psychoanalysis, life and death Psychosexual development Quote-unquote, follow the money The oral stage, anal stage, phallic stage, genital stage Moving through the stages Hey, here's something. It's generally known that psychosexual development is uh, basically disproven, right? So you could learn about that on your own time. We might just skip that section. Unless, I mean, I'm sure what he's going to do is go through and show how that's not a thing. Because I trust my professor on that. And I would rather just deal with the real, you know? Once you know... That, the, that Freud gets a lot of shit because one part of his big theory is basically has no scientific evidence for it at all. Um, and that's the psychosexual development. So the unconscious and all that, good. Some ideas about defending the ego and things like that. Internal conflicts, yeah, that's all Freud and that's good shit. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and Freud's my baby. You can throw that psychosexual development stuff out, though. I mean, if he's right. But maybe we'll have to read it, and then we can form our own opinion. Wouldn't that be interesting if Funder was uh, not on the same page with my professor? Let's see here. Uh, where were we? Um, thinking and consciousness. Parapraxies. Forgetting. Slips. Sleeps. Put on me sleepers. Anxiety and defense psychoanalysis as a therapy and as a route toward understanding psychoanalytic theory a critique excessive complexity case study method vague definitions untestability sexism why study freud Stack and feel it. That's okay. Forgive me. What goes on in the dark, hidden, unconscious recesses of the human mind? The goal of the psychoanalytic approach initiated by Sigmund Freud and developed later by neo-Freudian theorists is to answer that question. Psychoanalytic theory is intricate and comes in many versions, but in this chapter I keep things relatively simple. But please note, I say relatively simple. There's no way to talk seriously about psychoanalysis without delving into some deep and complex matters. Freud himself. In this book, I've tried to avoid the trap of writing about psychologists instead of about psychology. Psychology is much more than, quote, what psychologists do, end quote. And there is usually little reason to learn about their personal lives. We must make an exception for Freud. No other psychological approach is at once so influential and so closely identified with a single individual. Freud is one of the most interesting and important people to have lived in the past couple of centuries, so let's take a moment to consider Freud and how he developed his ideas. 
Sigmund Freud, 1856 to 1939, was a medical doctor who practiced in Vienna, Austria, from the 1890s until the 1930s. Because he was Jewish, he had to flee his native country after Hitler came to power in the 1930s. He spent the last few years of his life in London. Freud died in a pessimistic frame of mind, convinced that the impending Second World War, following so closely on the heels of the catastrophic First World War, proved that we humans have an aggressive, destructive urge that in the end will destroy us all. One of Freud's less profound yet most enduring cultural legacies is that he is probably the source of the stereotype of what a psychotherapist should look like. He had a beard and small eyeglasses. He favored three-piece suits with a watch chain hanging from the vest. When he spoke English, it was with a Viennese accent. He had a couch in his office along with some impressive African art that some patients reportedly found distracting. Yeah, he is the source. I get it. He's the source of that stereotype. Sorry to interrupt. Freud began his career as a research neurologist. He went to France for a time to study the newly developing field of hypnosis with Jean-Martin Charcot. He gradually moved into the practice of psychology in part so he could make a living and get married. Then, as now, medical practice paid much better than theoretical research. Early in his clinical practice, Freud made a simple but fundamental discovery. When his patients talked about their psychological problems, sometimes that by itself was enough to help or even cure them. At first, Freud used hypnosis to get his patients to talk about difficult topics. Later, he turned to the use of free association, instructing the patient to say whatever came to mind for the same purpose. One of Freud's grateful patients dubbed the results of such therapy the quote-unquote talking cure. The talking cure was Freud's greatest contribution to psychotherapy. By now, it is ubiquitous. A fundamental assumption of nearly every school of psychotherapy, including many whose followers claim they have nothing in common with Freud, is that talking about it helps. Freud thought he knew why talking about it helps. One reason is because making thoughts and fears explicit by saying them out loud brings them into the open where the conscious, rational mind can deal with them. Your crazy thoughts won't make you so crazy once you have thought through them rationally. Another reason is that the psychotherapist can provide emotional support during the patient's difficult task of trying to figure out what is going on. In a letter to Carl Jung, Freud wrote that, quote, psychoanalysis is in essence a cure through love, end quote. And every psychotherapist keeps a box of tissues handy. Many non-Freudian schools of psychotherapy have adopted these two ideas as well. Freud attracted numerous disciples whom he encouraged to help spread the ideas of psychoanalysis. Many of them had strong minds of their own, leading to some famous and bitter quarrels. Carl Jung and Alfred Adler were the most prominent of Freud's followers, who eventually split from their mentor. 
Freud's ideas came from the patients he treated and, even more importantly, from his observations of the workings of his own mind. This is something the psychoanalytic approach has in common with the humanistic approach, which is considered later in this book. For both psychoanalysts and humanists, the first step in studying psychology is to try to understand your own mind. An essential part of traditional psychoanalytic training is being psychoanalyzed one's self. Freud's ideas were influenced by the time and place in which he lived and by the patients he saw. Most were well-to-do women, a surprising number of whom reported having been sexually abused by their fathers when they were young. Freud at first believed them and saw this early abuse as a common source of long-lasting trauma. He was right. Later, he changed his mind and decided that these memories were fantasies that, for psychological reasons, had come to seem real. Between you and me, I think there's an obvious conflict of interest there if the fathers are the ones sending the girls and you say hey this girl was sexually abused by you uh, I don't think the father is going to be continuing to send the girl for therapy anymore so at some point I think if I understand this correctly Freud kind of came forward with this information and you know was in trouble with a lot of key figures in the society and so then he had to change it change it or or move stop working there don't practice there i don't know or maybe he believed his own lie or or maybe in some cases you know there could still be a, some cases where someone did imagine it and it didn't happen i don't know but i think in general it probably happened if if we agree with you know common sense a little bit you block out the memory, you uncover it, you think you're in a safe place where you can talk about it, you're never allowed to talk about it, so you're never allowed to think about it, and now you're thinking about it. To me, it's just pretty obvious, but you never know. There could be someone, there could be anybody who has some kind of fantasy thing going on, and maybe that's related to just sexuality in general. I don't know. But I think that a lot of hit, this kind of sexual stuff is a disproven. This is all coming from Freud in attempts maybe to justify his huge mistake. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that much about Freud. So why am I talking about Freud? Just because that is really important, that conflict of interest. Who's paying for these sessions of these young ladies? Do these young ladies have jobs in what, 19, what was it, Eight, in 1882? I don't think so. Uh, now I'm thinking maybe later that follow the money in quotes, maybe Fundry is gonna address this later. Okay, anyway, let's get back to this. What are, we, what are we even looking at? Now that you have met Freud, let's turn to the basics of the theory he developed. Key Ideas of Psychoanalysis An elegant aspect of the psychoanalytic approach is that all of its complexity is built on a small number of key ideas. The four ideas that make up the foundation of psychoanalysis are psychic determinism, internal structure, psychic conflict, and mental energy. Psychic Determinism The first and most fundamental assumption of the psychoanalytic approach is psychic determinism. Determinism, a basic tenet of science, is the idea that everything that happens has a cause that, in principle, maybe not always in practice, can be identified. 
The psychic determinism at the root of the psychoanalytic approach is the assumption that everything that happens in a person's mind, and therefore everything that a person thinks and does, also has a specific cause. This idea leaves no room for miracles, free will, or even random accidents. If it did, the entire approach would stall at the starting line. The key faith, and that is really what it is, faith, of a psychoanalyst is that psychology can explain even a prostitute patronizing anti-crime governor, a moralizing compulsive gambler, or a male anti-homosexuality crusader who propositions men hanging around outside hotels. All that is needed is diligence, insight, and of course the proper psychoanalytic framework. The non-deterministic alternative would be to say something like, quote, he just decided to get a prostitute, or go gambling, of his own free will, despite what he said. End quote. Or, quote, he's just inconsistent, end quote. Those statements might be true, but they really do not explain anything, and you would never hear either one from a psychoanalyst. Only slightly better would be observations, such as, Quote, this governor is a typical politician doing what is popular in order to get elected, but whatever he wants on the side, end quote. Or, quote, the author of The Book of Virtues is simply a hypocrite, end quote. These explanations also might be true, but they still fail to explain how a governor of a major state could be unable to resist behaving in a way that not only contradicted his publicly espoused values, but endangered, and ultimately ended his political career, and how moral crusading can come out of the same brain as a multi-million dollar vice. There must be a reason, and psychoanalysts would argue that the reason lies somewhere in the structure and dynamics of personality. The trick is to find it. From a psychoanalytic perspective, all seeming contradictions of mind and behavior can be resolved, and nothing is ever accidental. There is a reason for why you preached one way and acted another. There is also a reason you forgot that name, dropped that dish, or said a word you did not intend to say. The purpose of psychoanalysis is to dig deep to find those reasons, which usually lie in the hidden part of the mind. The assumption of psychic determinism, therefore, leads directly to the conclusion that many important mental processes are unconscious. Modern research tends to support this conclusion. It appears that only some of what the mind does, perhaps only a small part, is accessible to conscious awareness. Internal Structure A second key assumption of psychoanalysis is that the mind has an internal structure made of parts that can function independently of and in some cases in conflict with each other. We saw in chapter 8 that this assumption is consistent with what we now know about brain function, but it is important to remember the distinction between the mind and the brain. The brain is a physical organ, whereas the mind is the psychological result of what the brain and the rest of the body do. Psychoanalytic theory sees the mind as divided into three parts, which will probably sound familiar to you. They're usually given the Latinized labels id, ego, and superego. 
These terms pertain to the irrational and emotional part of the mind, the rational part of the mind, and the moral part of the mind, respectively. The independence of these three mental structures can raise interesting problems. The id of the governor of New York compelled him to seek out prostitutes even while his superego condemned the activity. The Book of Virtues excoriates a long list of vices that strangely omits gambling. The Oklahoma church official sought out male prostitutes at the same time he publicly denounced homosexuality. In all of these cases, the ego, the rational part of the mind, doesn't seem to have been very effective at its job, which is to manage the crossfire between competing psychological forces. Modern research in biological and cognitive psychology has not found that the mind is actually divided neatly into three parts. However, both kinds of research do support the idea that the mind includes separate and independent structures that process different thoughts and motivations simultaneously. So while the three parts of the mind might not exist exactly as Freud envisioned them, it is plausible to consider the mind as containing many voices, not just one, and that they might not all be saying the same thing. They might even be arguing with each other. Because the mind is divided into distinct and independent parts, it can conflict with itself as we saw in the cases of the governor, the moralist, and the church official. But psychic conflict is not always so dramatic. Let's assume, for example, that at this moment your id wants ice cream, but your superego thinks you don't deserve it because you haven't studied all week. It might fall to your ego to formulate a compromise. You get to have the ice cream after you have finished reading this chapter. The idea of compromise formation is a key tenet of modern psychoanalytic thought. The ego's main job, psychoanalysts now believe, is to find a middle course between the competing demands of motivation, morality, and practicality, and also among the many things a person wants at the same time. The result of the compromise is what the individual consciously thinks and actually does. If the governor's and the church officials' egos had been more effective, they might have been able to find some kind of middle ground between their sexual motivations and their morality. The ego of the Book of Virtues author failed him by leaving him in the awkward position of campaigning sternly against all modern vices except one. Without reasonable internal compromises, these individuals were left to flail between strong and contradictory impulses, first one way and then the other, with disastrous results. Mental energy. The final key assumption of the psychoanalytic approach is that the apparatus of the mind needs energy to make it go. The kind of energy required is sometimes called mental or psychic energy, also known as libido, and only a fixed and finite amount is available at any given moment. Let's use it. Therefore, energy spent doing one thing, such as pushing uncomfortable thoughts out of memory, is unavailable for other purposes, such as having new and creative ideas. The principle of the conservation of energy applies to the mind as it does to the physical world. Expressing anger typically makes a person more angry, not less. A direct contradiction of the original Freudian idea. 
This principle seems reasonable, and Freud based it on the Newtonian physics of his day, but some of its implications have not stood the test of time very well. For example, the original formulation assumed that if a psychological impulse was not expressed, it would build up over time, like steam expanding a boiler. If someone made you angry, then unless you expressed your anger, the associated psychic energy would build up until something snapped. This is an interesting idea that seems in accord with some real-life experience, such as the meek and mild person who allows himself to be pushed around until he bursts forth in murder. However, research suggests that it is usually wrong. Expressing anger typically makes a person more angry, not less, a direct contradiction of the original Freudian idea. There is another reason not to take the energy metaphor too literally. My first job teaching was at a college of engineering and science. One day, my class of future engineers was dozing politely through my lecture on Freud when I mentioned psychic energy. They immediately perked up, and one student, grabbing his notebook, asked eagerly, Psychic energy, in what units is that measured? Unfortunately, I replied, Psychic energy is not something that Freud ever measured in units of any kind. It was just a metaphor that applied in some respects, but not in others, and none too precisely in any case. At that, the students sighed, slouched back into their chairs, and no doubt privately redoubled their determination to become engineers rather than psychologists. Modern psychoanalytic theory has moved away from Freud's original conception. In current thinking, the assumption is that it is the mind's capacity for processing information, rather than its energy, that is limited. This reformulation discards the idea that unexpressed impulses build up over time, but retains the implication that capacity used up by one purpose is not available for anything else. One goal of psychoanalysis is to free up more psychic energy, or computing capacity, for the challenges of daily living by removing neurotic conflicts one at a time. Controversy from the beginning until the present day, the psychoanalytic approach has stirred more controversy than any other approach to psychology. Some people have even viewed it as dangerous. Objections to psychoanalysis change with the times. The Victorians looked at Freud's emphasis on sex and sexual energy and complained that his theory was, quote, dirty, end quote. We supposedly more... Enlightened folk of the 21st century look at Freud's emphasis on what cannot be seen and cannot be conclusively proved and complain that his theory is quote-unquote unscientific. The basis of the criticisms change, but in every age it seems a lot of people just don't like psychoanalysis, and many don't like Sigmund Freud either. It is interesting to see how often criticisms of psychoanalysis are mixed with complaints about his ethics, manners, and even personal life. More will be said about attacks on Freud in chapter 11. Freud anticipated these kinds of attacks and sometimes even seemed to revel in them. His response was not exactly self-effacing. He pointed out that Copernicus became unpopular for teaching that the earth is not the center of the universe, and that Darwin was derided for his claim that humans are just another species of animal. Freud's own insights that human nature is largely hidden, and that the motivations that drive many human behaviors are base and irrational, were not ideas he expected would win him many popularity contests.
He was right. Psychoanalysis bothers people. Let's bring this down to a personal level by considering two cautionary tales. They both exemplify the discomfort that psychoanalytic insights can cause and the dangers of offering such insights unsolicited. The first takes us way back to the time when I decided to major in psychology. I broke the news to my family in the traditional fashion. Returning home from college for Thanksgiving break, I waited for the inevitable question. Have you decided on a major yet? Psychology, I replied. As many others making this choice have discovered, my family was not exactly thrilled. After a stunned silence, my sister spoke first. Okay, she said, but so help me. If you ever psych me out, I will never speak to you again. Her comment is highly pertinent. Learning about personality psychology, especially the psychoanalytic approach, can produce irresistible urges to analyze the behavior and thoughts of those around us. It's all part of the fun. The advice you should take from my sister's warning, however, is to keep the fun private. People are typically not grateful to be analyzed. Sharing your insights into why your friends really did something can start serious trouble. This is true even if your insights are accurate. Freud thought this was true especially when your insights are accurate. My second tale is an example concerning psychoanalysis. When I get to the part of my course when I teach about Freud, I try to do so as an advocate. I make the best, most convincing case for psychoanalytic theory I can. Who knows what effect this sales job has on my students, but one person I never fail to convince is myself. Thus, for a few weeks each academic year, I turn into a raving Freudian. I become temporarily unable to avoid analyzing every slip, mistake, and accident I see. I did this once years ago on a date. In the course of a casual conversation, my dinner companion related something she had forgotten to do that day. Being deep in the Freudian phase of my syllabus, I immediately offered a complex and rather clever, I thought, interpretation of the unconscious anxieties and conflicts that probably caused her memory lapse. My insight was not well received. My date vehemently replied that my interpretation was ridiculous and that in the future I could keep my absurd Freudianisms to myself. Gesturing for emphasis, she knocked a glass of ice water onto my lap. Picking up the ice cubes, but still in a Freudian frame of mind, all I could do was acknowledge the vivid, symbolic nature of the warning I had received. The moral of these two stories is the same. Keep your clever analyses of other people to yourself. If you are wrong, it will make them mad. If you are right, it will make them even madder. As they say at stunt demonstrations, we are trained professionals. Do not try this at home. Psychoanalysis, Life and Death Behind the many sometimes contradictory things that people want, Freud believed two motives are fundamental. The first motive impels toward life, the other toward death. Both motives are always present and competing. In the end, death always wins. The life drive is sometimes called libido, also referred to as the sexual drive, which is what libido means in ordinary conversation. In psychoanalytic writings by Freud and by those who came later, libido receives a great deal of attention, but I think it is also widely misunderstood, perhaps in part because so many people are easily distracted by any reference to sex. In the final analysis, sex is simply life. Sex is necessary for the creation of children, biological interventions aside, and its enjoyment can be an important part of being alive. 
In this sense, libido is the sexual drive. Freud meant that it had to do with the creation, protection, and enjoyment of life and with creativity, productivity, and growth. This fundamental force exists within every person, Freud believed. Relatively late in his career, Freud posited a second fundamental motive, a drive toward death. He called it thanatos, Greek for death, although he probably did not mean to claim the existence of a quote-unquote death wish. He held a fundamental belief in the duality of nature or the idea that everything contains its own opposite. Freud observed that not only do people engage in a good deal of destructive activity that does not seem rational, Wars are a good example, but also, in the end, everybody dies. He introduced the, the death drive to account for these facts. This drive, too, is sometimes misunderstood. Freud probably was not as morbid as his idea of a drive toward death makes him sound. I suspect he had in mind something like the concept of entropy, the basic force in the universe toward randomness and disorder. Ordered systems tend toward disorder over time, and this trend is inevitable. Local short-term increases in order only result in widespread long-term increases in disorder. Freud viewed the human mind and life itself in similar terms. We try desperately throughout our lives to make our thoughts and our worlds orderly and to maintain creativity and growth. Although entropy dooms these efforts to failure in the end, we may have a pretty good ride in the meantime. So Freud's ultimate view of life was far from morbid. It might better be described as tragic. The opposition of libido and thanatos derives from another basic idea that arises repeatedly in psychoanalytic thinking, the doctrine of opposites. This doctrine states that everything implies, even requires, its opposite. Life requires death, happiness requires sadness, and so forth. One cannot exist without the other. An implication of this doctrine is that extremes on any scale may be more similar to each other than either extreme is to the middle. For example, consider pornographers and the leaders of pornography censorship campaigns. The doctrine of opposites would claim that they have more in common with each other than either does with people in the middle, for whom pornography is not much of an issue. There may be something to this idea. Pornographers and censorship crusaders share not only extremism, but also a certain fascination with pornographic material. They agree that it is very important, and they also spend a lot of time looking at it. Those in the middle, by contrast, may have a distaste for pornography, but are not so excited by its existence to make its prohibition a burning issue, or to immerse themselves in it all day long. Or consider an anti-prostitution crusader and a regular patron of prostitutes. They could not be more different, right? Remember the sad case of Elliot Spitzer? Or consider what happens when one person stops loving another. Does her new attitude more often move to the middle of the continuum? To quote-unquote mild liking? Or to the other extreme? The juxtaposition of the life drive with the death drive is also consistent with the doctrine of opposites, but the death drive came to Freud as a sort of afterthought. He never fully worked it into the fabric of his theory, and most modern analysts do not really believe in it. When I talk about psychic energy in the remainder of this book, therefore, the reference is to life energy, or libido. Psychosexual Development Follow the Money in the film All the President's Men, 
Reporter Bob Woodward asks his secret source, Deep Throat, wink wink, how to get to the bottom of the Watergate scandal embroiling the Nixon White House. Deep Throat replies, follow the money. He means that Woodward should find out who controlled a large sum of secret cash at the committee to re-elect the president, a fundraising organization for Nixon, and track how it was spent. This tip allows him and fellow reporter Carl Bernstein to crack the case. When trying to understand the workings and the development of the human mind, Freud gives us similar advice. His version is, follow the energy. Like money, psychic energy is both absolutely necessary and absolutely limited. So, the story of where it goes tends to be the story of what is really happening. This principle comes into play in Freud's account of how the mind of an infant gradually develops into the mind of an adult. As we saw in chapter 7, modern approaches typically view development as a result of the encounter of the physically maturing child and aging adult with the ever-changing tasks of childhood, adulthood, and old age. Freud's approach preceded these and follows the same basic structure, with one major difference. In Freud's view, psychosexual development, as he called it, is the story of how life energy, libido, becomes invested and then redirected over an individual's early years. A new baby fairly bubbles with life energy, but the energy lacks focus or direction. As a baby develops into a child and then an adult, the energy begins to focus, first on one outlet and then another. The focal points for psychic energy define the stages of psychosexual development. You have probably heard of them, oral, anal, phallic, and genital. Each stage has three aspects. One, a physical focus where energy is concentrated and gratification is obtained. Two, a psychological theme related both to the physical focus and to the demands on the child from the outside world during development. And three, an adult character type associated with being fixated to some degree stalled in that particular stage, rather than fully developing toward the next one. If an individual fails to resolve the issues that arise at a particular stage, the experience will leave psychological scar tissue, and the issues will remain troublesome throughout life. Freud's stages of psychosexual development. Now, hey, listen, if this is not a thing, why do I want to learn it? All right, I just read it very quickly, skimmed through it visually, and I just realized that's way faster than reading out loud. But here's the thing. I think that um, I'm not going to 100% believe my professor on this because after reading through it, I, I kind of get it. The oral stage, it's almost like once you get past the, uh, you know, the physical focus and you kind of see the psychological theme, it kind of is nice and useful as in like move on from this theme but then also about how the extremes of this theme in case in this case the dependence on someone um can lead to issues you know and so it's not a bad it's not a bad framework the different stages you know i think that the i think that that people don't want to think about these things these sexual oral anal phallic uh and genital stuff they don't want to think about that stuff especially in terms of development it's, it's creepy it's a little weird but I think that if we mainly just focus, we think of oral stage, let's say, as kind of like a, um, kind of like a joking placeholder for things that go on in this oral stage. But maybe a useful one because we can kind of think of like a baby that's like just once fed. And so if you think oral stage, think of a baby who just once fed. 
If the baby's getting not enough milk and attention, then the baby's gonna have trust issues later in life. And if they are getting way too much milk and attention every time they want it, these different extremes of behavior you see, then they will also have trouble later in life because people won't be able to fulfill that. It's not realistic. You gotta be able to have you know, some independent time and some dependent time. But let's go ahead and get into it because I think it's interesting. I think it's worthwhile. I don't know if this what part of the book was assigned or not, but anyway, oral stage. A newborn baby is essentially helpless. It flails its arms and legs around. It cannot see clearly nor reach out and grab something at once. It cannot crawl or even turn over. The lack of motor control and physical coordination is almost total. Almost. Almost. I need to learn how to burp while I talk. Uh, like the, who's the voice actor for Rick and Morty? Justin Roiland. Almost. There is one thing a newborn baby can do as well as any grown person. Suck. This is no small matter. The action is complex. The baby must develop suction with the mouth muscles and bring food into the stomach without cutting off the air supply. In a full-term baby, the necessary neuronal networks and muscles are in working order at birth. One of the many problems premature babies can have is that this complex mechanism may not yet function well. So ask yourself, how does a new baby have any fun? It can't involve the arms or legs, which don't really work yet, the primary source of pleasure for a newborn, and the one place on its body where the newborn can meaningfully interact with the environment is right there in the mouth. It stands to reason, therefore, that the mouth will be the first place of psychic energy focus. The oral stage of psychosexual development lasts from birth to about 18 months. Let's consider the three aspects described earlier for this stage of development. The physical focus of the oral stage, as just discussed, is on the mouth, lips, and tongue. Freud sometimes said that for an infant, these body parts are sexual organs, another remark that seems almost deliberately designed to be misunderstood. Freud meant that during this stage, the mouth is where the life force and primary feelings of pleasure are concentrated. Eating is an important source of pleasure, but so are sucking on things and exploring the world with one's mouth. When a baby begins to get control over his or her hands and arms and sees some small interesting object, what is the first thing he or she does? The baby puts the object in the mouth, often to the distress of the parents. Many parents assume the baby is trying to eat the ball or the pencil or the dead cockroach, but that is not the baby's real intention. The baby's hands are simply not developed enough to be of much use for exploration. When you pick up something interesting, you fondle it, turn it around, and feel its texture and its heft. None of this works for a baby because too many fine motor skills are required. Putting the object in the mouth can be more informative and interesting because the mouth is more developed than the hands. Twice as I'm reading this last uh, paragraph, I'm thinking of putting cloth in my mouth and the feeling that gives me, it gives me this terrible feeling. And I thought of it twice and it makes my teeth feel a certain way and it sends a fucking chill down my spine. The feeling of putting cloth, and I think I was having a flashback to exploring 
different objects and putting cloth in my mouth and teeth and not liking it. Weird. The psychological theme of the oral stage is dependency. A baby is utterly, even pathetically, dependent on others for everything he or she needs to live. The baby is passive in the sense that there is very little he or she can do for him or herself, though he or she may be far from passive in demanding what others should do. The baby's main psychological experience at this stage, therefore, is lying back and having others either provide everything he or she needs or not. Either way, there is not much the baby can do about it besides make plenty of noise, which babies do know how to do. Another way to make the same point is to observe that at the oral stage, the baby is all id. That is, the baby wants full time to be fed, to be held, to have a dry diaper, to be warm and comfortable, and to be entertained. Wanting stuff is the id's specialty. Actually doing something about those desires is the job of psychological structures that will develop only later along with the necessary physical competencies. If a baby's needs at this stage of life are fulfilled to a reasonable degree, then the focus of psychic energy will move along in due course to the next stage. Two things might go wrong, however. One is that the needs might not be fulfilled. The caretakers might be so uncaring, incompetent, or irresponsible that the baby is not fed when hungry, covered up when cold, or comforted when upset. If this happens, the baby may develop a basic mistrust of other people and never be able to deal adequately with dependency relationships. The idea of depending on other people or of being betrayed or abandoned by them will forever make him or her upset, although he or she might not realize why. A second thing that could happen is that a baby's needs are fulfilled so instantly and automatically that it never occurs to him or her that the world could respond differently. The increasing demands and slow service the world later provides therefore come as quite a shock. Such a person may wish to be back at the oral stage, where all that was necessary was to want something and have it immediately appear. Again, any issue that comes up in the baby's later life involving dependency, passivity, and activity might cause anxiety, though, again, he or she may be unaware as to just why. Here we see the doctrine of opposites again. It will resurface many, many times. An extreme childhood experience or its opposite will, according to Freud, yield equivalently pathological results. The ideal, Freud believed, lies in the middle. He was onto something. One recent study reported that children who grew up to be narcissists tended to have been raised by parents who either were excessively cold or showered them with too much admiration. In the case of the oral stage, Freud would recommend that a parent make reasonable efforts to fulfill a child's wants and needs, but not go overboard by making sure every wish is instantly gratified, nor neglect the child so much that the child starts to doubt whether basic needs will be met. I find it surprising and a little unfair that Freud gets so little credit for having been such a consistent and profound moderate. He disliked extremes of any kind, in behavior, in child-rearing styles, in personality types, in attitudes, in part because he saw both ends of most scales as equivalently pathological. Freud's ideal was always the golden mean. His adherence to this ideal is one of the most consistent and attractive aspects of his approach. It's very Zen Buddhist. And also, I feel the same way, and that's why my super low score in neuroticism scares me. I'm like, 
what could is could that be bad i don't like extremes so what's bad about having extremely low neuroticism and uh what my teacher came up with is maybe you're not you won't be as inclined to be neurotic enough to like do things like wash your hands a lot or be safe but i do this whole coronavirus thing i'm really on top of washing my hands and whatnot i'm not so neurotic that i'm not going to go on a walk but i'm definitely like if i'm opening doors and coming back into the building definitely washing my hands before I touch anything, including like feeding my dog or whatever, right? So that made me think with it, maybe my super high conscientiousness uh, is making up for that somehow, making up for the lack of neuroticism and that maybe if you don't have high conscientiousness, your neuroticism, your ultra low neuroticism could be pathological. Anyway, I digress. The adult personality type that Freud thought resulted from extreme childhood experience at this stage is the oral character. Both types of oral character share an obsession, discomfort, and fundamental irrationality about any issue related to dependency and passivity. At one extreme are the supposedly independent souls who refuse help from everyone, who are determined to go it alone no matter what the cost. To these people, no accomplishment means anything unless it is achieved without assistance. At the other extreme are the passive individuals who wait around seemingly forever for their ships to come in. They do little to better their situations, yet are continually bewildered and sometimes angry about their failure to get what they want. To them, wanting something should be enough to make it appear. That is how it works for babies. After all, they feel hungry or some other need, they cry, and somebody takes care of them. It is almost as if, as adults, oral characters expect things to work the same way. I have a relative who, while in his 30s, was once described as the world's oldest 16-year-old, which is actually an insult to many 16-year-olds. He is an intelligent, likable person, but for a long time seemed utterly unable to connect what he wanted with what he had to do to get it. At one point, he announced at a family gathering that he had finally formulated a career goal. With some anticipation, we waited to hear what it was. He explained that he had thought about it carefully, worked out all the figures, and decided he wanted a job that paid $100,000 a year after taxes. That would be enough to give him everything he wanted. And what would the job be, we asked. He seemed surprised by the question. He had not gotten around to that part. Some students show a related attitude. At the end of the semester, they plead for a higher grade on the grounds that they need it. Often, they make an eloquent case for why they really need it. That should be enough, they seem to feel. The idea that attending class and doing the assignments was the way to earn a higher grade rather than simply demanding it after the course is over, seemed not to have occurred to them. Honestly, maybe it never did. The reverse kind of oral character, the person who is chronically and pathologically independent, seems to be more rare, yet I have seen the same relative whom I just described disdain even the most minor help in preparing a cookout or fixing a car. Perhaps you know people who insist, I can do it myself, in the midst of utter failure. Again, the ideal is in the middle. A person who has resolved the oral stage accepts help gracefully but is not utterly dependent on it and understands that people are ultimately responsible for their own outcomes. Anal stage. 
The glory of life at the oral stage is that you do not have to do anything. Because you cannot take care of yourself, you are not expected to. You do and express whatever you feel like, whatever you can, whenever you want. Well, and truly, this is too good to last. Many breastfeeding mothers have had the experience of their baby sucking away, suddenly trying out his new teeth with a good strong bite. You can imagine how the mom reacts. She yells, Yow! or something stronger, and instantly pulls the baby off. And you know how the baby reacts, with outrage, anger, frustration, and maybe even fear, if mom yelled loudly enough. Her reaction comes as a rude shock. What do you mean I can't bite when I feel like it? Moreover, the baby quickly discovers that until he or she can muster enough self-control to stop biting, the good stuff will fail to be forthcoming. This experience marks a dark day. Life pretty much goes downhill from then on. The demands of the world escalate rapidly. The child is expected to do some things for his or herself, to start to control emotions, for example. As the child begins to understand language, he or she is expected to follow orders. He or she learns the word no, a new and alarming concept. And something that famously got Freud's attention, the child must learn to control the bowels, and processes of elimination. Toilet training begins. From all of this, the child begins to develop a new psychological structure, the ego. The ego's job is to mediate between what the child wants and what is actually possible. It is the rudimentary ego that must figure out that breastfeeding will continue only as long as biting ceases, it is through painful lessons like this that the ego typically begins to develop a wide range of capabilities to rationally control the rest of the mind. The physical focus of the anal stage is on the anus and associated organs of elimination, learning the sensations of quote-unquote having to go and dealing with them appropriately are important tasks. Freud and others pointed out that a good deal of everyday language seems to reveal an emotional resonance with the processes and products of elimination. This includes not only many standard insults and expletives with which I suspect you are familiar, but also descriptions of some people. Anal characters, as it turns out, are uptight, and the common advice to let it all out which suggests relaxing one's self-control and acting naturally. But I am going to bend Freud a bit here, to be more consistent with the story of development that was discussed in Chapter 7, and also in the direction of Ericksonian theory, which was summarized in Chapter 11. I think the classic theory places a misleading degree of emphasis on literal defecation and its supposed physical pleasures, Toilet training is an important period of life and seems to be the source of some powerful symbolic language, but it is just one example among many increasing demands for obedience and self-control that begin around the age of 18 months. As the child develops the capacity for bowel control, the parents, tired of diapers, are eager to have the child use this new skill. But this escalation from expectation applies to many other circumstances as well from, quote, get your own drink of water, end quote, to, quote, don't touch that, end quote. The primary psychological theme of the anal stage is self-control and its corollary obedience.
There is a lot to learn at the anal stage, and things do not always go smoothly. Typically, a child will try to figure out just how much power the authority figures around him or her really have to make him or her do their bidding, as opposed to how much he or she gets to decide. The child does this by testing the parents, experimenting to find the boundaries of what he or she can get away with. What happens if the child pulls the cat's tail after being told not to? If the parents say, no more cookies, what happens if the child sneaks one anyway? In the folklore of parenthood, this testing stage is known as the quote-unquote terrible twos. Two things might go wrong at this point. As always in psychoanalytic thinking, the two possible mistakes are polar opposites, and the ideal is in the middle. Unreasonable expectations can be traumatic. If parents insistently make demands that the child is not capable of meeting, for example, that the child always obey, never cry, or hold his or her bowels longer than physical capability allows, the result can be psychological trauma with long-lasting consequences. And the opposite, never demanding that the child control his or her urges, neglecting toilet training altogether, can be equally problematic. As at every stage, the child's developmental task is to figure out what is going on in the world and how to deal with it. At the anal stage, the child must figure out and how much to control his or herself and how and how much to be controlled by those in authority. This is a thorny issue even for an adult. A child will never work it through sufficiently if the environment is too harsh or too lenient. Research that followed a sample of children from childhood into late adolescence basically confirmed this Freudian view. Their parents were classified as authoritarian, extremely rigid and obedience-oriented, permissive, weak and lacking control, or authoritative, compromising between firm control and their children's freedom. As Freud would have anticipated, it was the authoritative parents, the ones in the middle, whose children fared the best later in life. Psychological mishaps at the anal stage produce the adult anal character whose personality becomes organized around control issues. One way is to become obsessive, compulsive, stingy, orderly, rigid, and subservient to authority. This kind of person tries to control every aspect of his or her life and often seems equally happy to submit to an authority figure. He or she cannot tolerate disorganization or ambiguity. Long ago, one of my professors of abnormal psychology said he had a one-item test for detecting an anal character. Go to that person's room and you will see on the desk a row of pencils or other items in a perfectly straight line. Reach over casually, turn one of the pencils at a 90 degree angle, and start timing. If within two minutes the person has moved the pencil back, he or she is an anal character. This test is too facile, of course, but you get the idea. The other type of anal character is exactly the opposite. This person may have little or no self-control, be unable to do anything on time or because it is necessary, be chaotic and disorganized, and have a compulsive need to defy authority. Freud saw both types of anal characters as psychologically equivalent and further believed that such individuals would more likely flip from one anal extreme to the other than attain the ideal position in the middle. There is a lame joke dating from the 1970s that expresses this equivalence. Question. Why did the short hair cross the road? Answer. Because somebody told him to. Question. Why did the long hair cross the road? 
Answer, because somebody told him not to. Freud's point is similar. If you are rigidly, obsessively organized and obedient, you have a problem. If you are completely disorganized and disobedient because you cannot help it, you also have a problem. In fact, you have the same problem. Self-control and relations with authority should be means to an end, not ends in themselves. The ideal is to determine how and to what degree to organize your life and how you relate to authority in order to achieve your goals. Phallic Stage The next stage of development begins with a realization. Boys and girls are different. According to the psychoanalytic theory, this fact begins to sink in at around the age of three and a half to four years and dominates psychosexual development until about age seven. The specific realization that occurs at the phallic stage for both sexes, according to Freud, is that boys have a penis and girls do not, hence the name of the stage. The basic task of the phallic stage is coming to terms with sex differences and all that they imply. According to Freud, boys, having noticed that girls do not have penises, wonder what happened and if the same thing could happen to them. Girls just wonder what happened. Hardcore adherents of orthodox psychoanalysis launch into a pretty complicated story at this point. The story is based on the Greek myth of Oedipus, the man who knowingly killed his father and married his mother. According to the psychoanalytic version of the Oedipal crisis, young boys fall physically as well as emotionally in love with their mothers, and because of this they understandably fear their father's jealousy. The specific fear is that their fathers might castrate them in retaliation. For girls, this crisis is less intense, but they still suffer grief over the castration they believe has already occurred. To resolve this anxiety or grief, each child identifies with the same-sex parent, taking on many of his or her values and ideals, which lessen the child's feelings of rivalry and jealousy that might otherwise reach a critical level. The story of the Oedipal Crisis is rich and fascinating, and the summary just presented, which you may have noticed was exactly four sentences long, fails to do it justice. Nevertheless, I will not say much more about it here, in part because the story is so well told elsewhere. The best rendition in English may be the one provided by Bettelheim. A more important reason for not getting too deeply into the traditional story of the phallic stage is that it has not held up well in light of empirical research. So, I will discuss this point in development in simpler and more modern terms. It seems obvious that the realization that the sexes differ must be an important milestone in psychosexual development. It also seems natural that with this realization comes the awareness that one parent is male and the other female. I do not think it is far-fetched to think that children wonder about the attraction between their parents and that they fantasize to some degree about what a relationship with their opposite sex parent would be like. And although this may push the envelope a bit, I even think it's plausible that children feel guilty at some point about having such fantasies. The fantasies probably seem rather outlandish even to a child and the child probably suspects, probably correctly, that the same-sex parent would not exactly be thrilled if he or she knew what the child was thinking. I don't remember that at all. Wouldn't it be simpler just to say, like, the kid wants the attention of 
the mother or the father or whatever and so they're jealous of the attention that the parents give each other instead of them makes sense i mean i don't know why you need like it to be a kill your father marry your mother kind of thing that's okay the psychological theme of the phallic stage is gender identity and sexuality the need to figure out what it means to be a boy or a girl for most children, the best or most obvious examples are their mothers and fathers. One way to be a girl is to act like a mom, and to be a boy, act like a dad. This can mean taking on many of the parents' attitudes, values, and ways of relating to the opposite sex. Freud called this process identification. Related psychological themes of the phallic stage include love, fear, and jealousy. The adult consequences of the phallic stage include the development of morality, which Freud saw as a byproduct of the process of identification. The values of your same-sex parent provide the beginnings of your own moral outlook. Another adult consequence is the development of sexuality, what kind of person you find attractive, how you handle sexual competition, and the overall role of sexuality in your life. The most important result of the phallic stage is an Im image of oneself as masculine or feminine, whatever that may entail. Additional identifications are possible and even likely. A child might take on the values and behaviors of an admired teacher, relative, religious leader, or rock star. In some cases, people identify with those whom they love and admire, but in some circumstances, individuals identify with people they loathe and fear. During World War II, inmates in Nazi death camps reportedly sometimes identified with their guards, making Nazi armbands and uniforms from scraps and giving each other the Hail Hitler salute. According to psychoanalyst Bruno Bettelheim, who was an inmate at Dachau, and Butchenwald himself, this seemingly strange behavior was an adaptation to deal with their profound and realistic fear of the guards. To become more like the guards was to fear them less. I suspect milder forms of this behavior, trying to become more like the people one fears most, are rather common and one basis for the development of the superego. People sometimes identify with a teacher they hate, a coach who intimidates them, an older student who hazes them, or a drill sergeant, or an entire branch of the military who gives them little but abuse. In the process, these characters become less fearful while the person becomes a little more like them. Wherever they come from, and again, the usual source is the parents, the sum of one's identification makes up a third major psychic structure after the id and ego, the superego. The superego is the part of the mind that passes moral judgment on the other parts, judgments based on a complex mixture of all the different moral lessons learned directly and by example from everybody one has ever identified with. When successfully developed, the superego provides a conscience and a basis for reasonable morality, but as always, the development of the superego is a process that can go too far or not far enough. An overdeveloped or underdeveloped superego yields the adult type of the phallic character. A person who has developed a completely rigid moral code, one that brooks no shades of gray and no exceptions, might be a phallic type. So is someone who lacks a moral code altogether. An extremely promiscuous person might be a phallic type. So too might someone who becomes completely asexual. As always, Freud was suspicious of the extremes. The healthy place to be is in the middle. I am the same way when it comes to extremes. Genital stage. After the phallic stage, a child gets a chance to take a developmental breath and concentrate on the important learning tasks of childhood, such as learning to read, 
the names of plants and birds, arithmetic, and all of the other important stuff taught in elementary school. This latency phase is a sort of psychological respite to allow the child to learn much of what he or she will need in adult life. The rest of the period ends with a bang at puberty. The genital stage of development is fundamentally different from the others in that Freud saw it not as something individuals necessarily pass through, but as something that must be sought. Adulthood is not inevitable. It is an achievement. Sometime after physical puberty, if all goes well, a person develops a mature attitude about sexuality and other aspects of adulthood. Freud is not explicit about when this happens, and some people apparently it never happens. The physical focus of the genital stage is the genitals, but notice how this label differs from that of the phallic stage. Genital describes not just a physical organ, the word also refers to the process of reproduction or giving life. The genitals at this stage become not just organs of physical pleasure, but the source of new life and the basis of a new psychological theme. The focus of the genital stage is the creation and enhancement of life. True maturity, Freud believed, entailed the ability to bring new life into the world and nurture its growth. This new life includes children, but it also can include other kinds of creativity, such as intellectual, artistic, or scientific contributions. The developmental task of the genital stage is to add something constructive to life and to society, and to take on the associated adult responsibilities. In that sense, the psychological theme of the genital stage is maturity. And as I mentioned, not everybody attains it. The genital character is psychologically well-adjusted and, here comes the familiar word, balanced. Early in the 20th century, Freud made his only trip to the United States. He was dismayed to find himself trailed by newspaper reporters who found some of his sexual theories titillating, especially after they had finished distorting them. Freud's lifelong aversion to America and anything American seems to have been boosted by this experience. But the trip was not a total loss. At one point, a reporter asked him, Dr. Freud, what is your definition of mental health? Freud gave the best answer that anybody has ever come up with, before or since. The essence of mental health, he said, is the ability to, quote, to love and to work, end quote. The most important word in this definition is and. Freud thought it was important to love, to have a mate and family to care for and nurture. He also thought it was important to work, to do something useful and constructive for society. The good life, Freud thought, would always contain both. To do just one was to be an incomplete person. Moving through stages. As we have seen, an important task while developing through these stages is building basic psychological structures. At the beginning of the oral stage, the newborn baby is all id, a seething bundle of wants and needs. As the baby moves into the anal stage, experiences of frustration and delay lead part of the mind to differentiate and separate, taking some of its energy to form the ego. The ego has the duty to control and channel the urges of the id. At the phallic stage, the child identifies with important persons, principally his or her parents, and the sum of these identifications forms the third structure, the superego. The superego is the conscience. It morally judges the person's actions and urges, and sometimes tries to stop them. 
Freud once used a different analogy. A mind progressing through the stages of psychosexual development is like an army conquering hostile territory. Periodically, it encounters opposition and, at that point, a battle ensues. To secure the ground afterwards, some troops are left behind. If the battle was particularly bitter, and if the local resistance remained strong, a larger part of the army must stay behind, leaving fewer troops to advance. Moreover, if the main army encounters severe problems later, it is likely to retreat to a stronghold at the site of a former battle. In this analogy, the individual store of libido is the army. It encounters quote-unquote battles at each of the developmental stages. If the battle of the oral, anal, or phallic stage is not completely won, libidinal energy must be left behind at that point. The result will be fixation. The adult will continue to struggle with issues from that stage and will tend to retreat there under stress. Such retreat is called regression. An oral character under stress becomes passive and dependent and may even revert to thumb-sucking. An anal character under stress becomes even more rigid or more disorganized than usual. A phallic character under stress may become promiscuous or completely asexual. Victory, in this analogy, means making it through all of these stages to the final genital stage, with as much of one's army intact as possible. The more libido available to enjoy the final stage of maturity, the better adjusted the adult will be. Thinking and Consciousness Underneath the progression through these psychosexual stages, the mind is also undergoing a subtle, profound, but, in, but an incomplete shift between two kinds of thinking primary process thinking and secondary process thinking. Secondary process thinking is what we ordinarily mean by the word think. The conscious part of the ego thinks this way. It is rational, practical, and prudent, and it can delay or redirect gratification. It is secondary in two senses. First, it appears only as the ego begins to develop. A newborn has no capacity for secondary process thinking. Second, Freud believed it played a less important role relative to primary process thinking, which he considered more interesting, important, and powerful throughout life, not just in infancy. Primary process thinking is the way the unconscious mind operates and how the infants as well as the adults id is said to operate. It is a strange sort of thinking. The fundamental aspect of primary process thinking is that it does not contain the word or even the idea of no. It is thinking without negatives, qualifications, sense of time, or any of the practicalities, necessities, and dangers of life. It has one goal, the immediate gratification of every desire. Primary process thinking operates by an odd shorthand that can tie disparate feelings closely together. Your feelings about your family can affect how you feel about your house, for example. Primary process thinking can use displacement to replace one idea or image with another. Your anger towards your father might be replaced by anger at all authority figures, or your anger toward an authority might be transformed into anger at your father. Condensation can compress several ideas into one. An image of a house or of a woman might consolidate a complex set of memories, thoughts, and emotions. And through symbolization, one thing might stand in for another. At one point in his career, 
Freud thought there might be a universal symbolic code of the unconscious mind in which certain symbols meant the same thing to everybody the world over. He thought people could use these symbols to interpret the meanings of dreams, and some of these are included in the little paperback books on dream analysis you can get at the supermarket. They include translations like house equals human body, smooth fronted house, male body, house with ledges and balconies, female body, king and queen, parents, little animals, children, children, genitals, playing with children, you fill in this one. Going on a journey equals dying, clothes, nakedness, going upstairs, having sex, bath, birth. Intriguing as lists like this can be, Freud later dropped the idea of universal symbols. He decided that meanings vary for every individual, and therefore a general dictionary of the unconscious was not useful. The idea of unconscious universal symbols was picked up with vengeance, however, by Carl Jung. Primary process thinking is a very interesting concept. But one might reasonably ask, if primary process thinking is a property of the unconscious mind, then where is it ever quote-unquote seen? Freud thought that it could emerge into consciousness under several limited circumstances. He believed that the conscious thought of very young children operates according to primary process thinking, but because they develop secondary process thinking by the time they can talk, this hypothesis is difficult to verify. Actually, it's impossible. He also thought primary process thinking could become conscious during fever delirium and during dreams. This is consistent with the experience that in dreams or delirium, time may run backwards, one person might change into another, images may dissolve into other things, and so on. Freud also thought that psychotics sometimes consciously experience primary process thinking. If you listen to the speech of someone suffering from schizophrenia, you will see where he got this idea. Freud posited three levels of consciousness in what sometimes is called his topographic model. The smallest, topmost, and in Freud's view, least important layer is the conscious mind, the part of your mental functioning you can observe when you simply turn your attention inward. A second layer, the preconscious, consists of ideas you are not thinking about at the moment, but that you could bring into consciousness easily. For example, how is the weather outside right now? What did you have for breakfast? Where is your car parked? Presumably, none of these things was in your conscious mind until I asked, but you, are, but you probably had little trouble bringing them into your conscious awareness. Freud's theory posits that most of what the mind does, including just about all of the operations of the id and superego, occurs out of consciousness. Only a small part of the functioning of the ego routinely enters conscious awareness. Here's Freud's diagram showing the relationship between consciousness and the id, ego, and superego. Freud wrote about this diagram, It is certainly hard to say today how far the drawing is correct. In one respect, it is undoubtedly not. The space occupied by the unconscious id ought to have been incomparably greater than that of the ego or the preconscious. I must ask you to correct it in your thoughts. The third and biggest, and according to Freud, the most important layer of the mind is the unconscious, which includes all of the id, nearly all of the superego, and most of the ego. The unconscious is buried deep. The only way to bring it to the surface is by digging. One method of psychological digging that Freud used early in his career was hypnosis, 
Other clues come from slips of the tongue, accidents, and lapses of memory. All have their causes in mental processes that occur outside of consciousness. Finally, Freud developed the technique of free association, in which a person is encouraged to say whatever comes to mind in relation to some concern or issue. Freud thought the mental wanderings of free association were not random. He never thought anything was random. Therefore, the way a person jumps from one thought to another offers important clues about his or her unconscious. Another clue to the unconscious is provided by unintentional actions and memory lapses. Our next topic. Parapraxies. A parapraxis, plural, parapraxies, is another name for what is commonly called a Freudian slip, a leakage from the unconscious mind manifesting as a mistake, accident, omission, or memory lapse. Remember that Freud was a determinist. He thought everything had a cause. This belief comes into play when considering the causes of accidents and other slips. Freud was never willing to believe that they happened at random. Forgetting. According to Freud, forgetting something is a manifestation of an unconscious conflict revealing itself in your behavior. The slip, or parapraxis, is the failure to recall something you needed to remember, which can result in embarrassment or worse. These consequences make the lapse a parapraxis. In the service of suppressing something in your unconscious mind, your slip messes up something in your life. To avoid thinking about something painful or anxiety-producing, you fail to remember it. You make a date and then have second thoughts, so you forget you made it. Although you might have saved yourself some immediate anxiety, when you run into your erstwhile date the next day in the cafeteria, you will have a significant social problem. Many college students manage to forget the times that exams are held and term papers are due. Failing to remember may make the students less anxious in the short run, but can produce serious difficulties in the long run. Occasionally, a student will make an appointment with me to discuss a difficulty he or she is having in class. I know the odds are no better than 50% that the student will show up at the appointed time. The explanation is always the same. I forgot. These examples are fairly obvious, but Freud insisted that all lapses reveal unconscious conflicts. Now the going gets a little tougher. What about when you forget something for no reason? No such thing, according to Freud. The psychoanalytic faith declares that with sufficient psychotherapy using free association, a therapist can eventually figure out the cause of any memory lapse. The system of causal roots may be quite complex. You may have forgotten to do something because it reminds you of something else, which through primary process thinking has come to symbolize yet a third thing, which makes you anxious. In one case, a psychoanalyst reported that a patient forgot the name of an acquaintance who had the same name as a personal enemy. Moreover, the acquaintance was physically handicapped, which reminded the patient of the harm he wished to do to the enemy of the same name. To defend against the superego-induced guilt this wish produced, he forgot the name of his perfectly innocent acquaintance. Slips Slips are unintended actions caused by the leakage of suppressed thoughts or impulses. Many of them happen in speech and can be as simple as a failure to suppress what one privately wishes to say. In one of the first courses on psychoanalysis I took in college, the professor was mentioning the students who visited during his office hours. When infants come to see me, he said, and then he stopped, stammered, and his face turned bright red. 
his students did not fail to understand this revelation of what he really thought of them. Saying the name of a former boyfriend or girlfriend at important and delicate moments with one's current boyfriend or girlfriend is a common and extremely embarrassing slip. Explanations are often demanded. Why did you say is her name? I just made a mistake. It didn't mean anything. One's current significant other is no more likely to believe this reply than would Sigmund Freud himself. Slips can occur in action as well as in speech. Accidentally breaking something can be a leakage of hostility against the person who owns the object, who gave you the object, or whom the object for some reason symbolizes. A more pleasant example is the standard interpretation of somebody accidentally leaving something at your house after a visit. It means the object's owner hopes to come back. As already noted, the person who commits these slips of speech or action may deny that the slip meant anything. Not only does psychoanalysis not accept such a denial, but the louder and more vehement it is, the more a Freudian will suspect a powerful and important impulse. But what about accidents that happen when a person is tired, not paying attention, in a hurry, or excited? These two are not accidents, according to Freud. Fatigue, inattention, or excitement might make slips more likely, but they do not cause them. Freud compared the role of such factors to the way darkness helps a robber. A dark street might make a burglary more likely, but dark streets do not cause burglaries. A burglar is still required. Similarly, fatigue, inattention, and other factors might make it easier for a suppressed impulse to leak into behavior, but they are not the cause of the impulse. Does this mean that there really are no accidents? Freud believes so. Any failure to do something you ordinarily can do, such as drive a car safely, must be due to the leakage of a suppressed impulse. Some examples that fit this description have been quite prominent. In the Winter Olympics a few years ago, a skier on the way to an important downhill race broke her leg when she crashed into a member of the ski patrol. This was an accident, of course, but it is also reasonable to ask how often an Olympics-level skier crashes into somebody else. How often does a skier crash into a member of the ski patrol? And of all mornings of the skier's life, why did the accident happen on this morning? One is led to wonder if the skier did not want to show up for her race and why. An even more dramatic incident at the 1988 Olympics involved speed skater Dan Jansen, whose sister died of leukemia just five hours before he was scheduled to compete in the 500-meter event. Jansen was favored for the gold medal, and his sister had insisted he go to the Olympics even though the family knew she didn't have long to live. Ten seconds into the race, Jansen fell down. Four days later, in his second event, the 1,000-meter race, he fell again. A psychoanalytic perspective questions whether Jansen might have been ambivalent about coming home, bedecked in gold medals at such a time. He had fully wanted to succeed. It seems unlikely that he would have fallen down in the two most important athletic events of his life. I don't know, dude. Isn't it kind of like, well, maybe his head was just somewhere else and he couldn't focus in that moment? It's hard. It's a, I mean, could it just be a lack of focus? It was hard to focus on what I needed to do, so I fell. Because I'm thinking about my sister and not about the little bumps in the slope or whatever. It's a little much, guys. While there may not be many or any Freudians in the typical university psychology department, sometimes you can find them in, of all places, the physical education department. 
They may not think of themselves in such terms, but coaches are often practicing Freudians. They worry about instilling in their athletes the right mental attitude, a will to win. When a basketball player at the free throw line in a big game misses a shot, he or she can make 20 times in a row in practice. Any good coach knows the solution is not more free throw practice. Something about the athlete's attitude needs work. If the player had fully wanted to make the basket, the ball would have gone in. Ask any coach which team will win any given game, and the coach will reply, the team that wants it more. Freud would say, exactly right. The next time you fail to perform to your ability in sports, in academics, at work, or wherever, take a moment to ask yourself, did I really wholeheartedly want to succeed? If not, why not? Anxiety and defense. Anxiety is unpleasant. Its intensity can range from a vague and uneasy sense that not all is right with the world to, des to desperate and debilitating terror, the classic anxiety attack. Anxiety can be generated by stresses from the outside world and also by conflicts within the mind itself, the kind of anxiety Freud found most interesting. Either way, the anxiety might be too intense to bear. To help prevent this from happening, the ego employs an immer an impressive array of defense mechanisms. Denial. Prevent perception of source of anxiety. No, that's not possible. Repression. Prevent recall of anything that might remind one of the source of anxiety. I forgot. Reaction formation. Protect against a forbidden thought or impulse by instigating the opposite. Pornography is the biggest menace to humanity there is. Projection. Attribute an unwanted impulse or attribute in oneself to other people. I'm surrounded by morons. Rationalization. Create a seemingly logical reason for doing something shameful. You have to be cruel to be kind. Intellectualization. Translate a threatening situation into cold, intellectual terms. After a prolonged period of discomfort, the patient expired. Displacement. Redirect forbidden impulse onto a safer target. Professor Dartboards. Sublimation. Convert base impulse into a noble cause. High art, other occupational choices. Each defense mechanism serves the function of shielding us from reality, at least temporarily. And we're going to go through all of these again. Denial simply involves refusing to believe the bad news or other knowledge that might make one anxious. It's what you see when a student learning for the first time about a bad grade shouts, No! Repression is more complex and might involve failing to acknowledge anything that might remind a person of the unwanted thought and, as was described above, can lead to forgetting names, events, obligations, and appointments. Reaction formation defends one's peace of mind by creating the opposite idea, as when somebody worried about his own moral fiber decides to write a book telling other people how to be virtuous. Projection can work almost the same way by developing the idea that something one fears is true about oneself is instead true about other people, such as when somebody who fears he or she is unintelligent believes that he 
or she is surrounded by idiots, or someone who is a habitual liar describes many other people as quote-unquote dishonest. Rationalization allows a person to come up with a rational explanation for doing what he or she wants without acknowledging the real motivation, such as when he or she convinces his or herself that he or she has to be cruel to be kind. Similarly, intellectualization translates anxiety-producing thoughts into concepts or jargon that put emotions at a distance, such as a doctor who talks about a patient who expired or experiences discomfort, or a general who reports on sustaining losses in combat. Displacement involves moving the object of one's emotions from a dangerous target to a safe one, such as when one has a disappointment at work and kicks the wall instead of the boss. Finally, sublimation provides a safe outlet for otherwise problematical desires, such as when somebody who wants to cut people open becomes a surgeon, someone who likes to argue becomes a lawyer, or somebody who wants to know secrets about other people that are none of his or her business becomes a psychologist. All of these mechanisms can provide relief from anxiety in the short run, but except for sublimation in the long run, they run the risk of making a person dangerously detached from reality. I like that little jab at psychologists for all you psychology students. Psychoanalysis as a therapy and as a route toward understanding. Freud believed that the problems that make most people anxious and unhappy have their roots in unconscious conflicts. The way to resolve these conflicts is to bring them into the open through dream analysis, analysis of slips and lapses, and free association. Once an unconscious conflict is brought into consciousness, the rational part of the ego is able to deal with it, and the conflict will no longer pose a problem. In the long run of therapy, Freud believed that insight into hidden parts of the mind would allow the patient full rational self-control. In other words, despite his focus on irrational mental processes, Freud believed in the ultimate power of reason. Of course, the process is a bit more complicated than that. Unconscious conflicts must be dealt with not just logically but emotionally, which takes time and can be painful. It can even be dangerous. As psychoanalytic psychologist Robert Bornstein pointed out, some patients with a history of severe sexual or physical abuse do not have the psychological resources available to cope adequately with explicit memories of these experiences. For these patients, therapeutic work should focus primarily on bolstering defenses and coping mechanisms. Only when these resources have been strengthened can insight be used productively within and outside of therapy. The prospect of losing one's neurosis can be surprisingly disconcerting. Many people avoid dealing with their unconscious anxieties for this reason. Psychoanalysts call this phenomenon of running away from the solution to one's psychological problems the flight from health. It is very common. It may be what is going on when you hear someone say, I don't want to talk about it. To comfort, guide, and support the patient through this difficult healing process, Freud believed the therapist and patient must form an emotional bond, called the therapeutic alliance. This alliance gets its power through transference, the tendency to bring ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving that developed toward one important person into a later relationship with a different person. One might relate to a teacher in the same way one learned years earlier to relate to one's father. Transference is particularly important in psychotherapy because the emotional relationship the patient develops with the therapist is built on the model of that patient's past relationships with other important people. 
the therapist has reactions to the patient as well, both positive and negative, called countertransference. The development of transference and countertransference in therapy is important, but it can also cause problems. Freud may have been the first psychotherapist to note that sexual attraction sometimes arises between patients and psychotherapists. He was adamant that it was the duty of the therapist to resist this attraction. The patient must become emotionally invested for therapy to work, Freud believed, and perhaps the therapist must as well, but the therapist must, at all costs, avoid acting on those emotions. This warning applies to negative reactions as well. Therapists working with difficult patients, such as those characterized by narcissistic personality disorder, describe feeling resentful, regretful, frightened, and manipulated. They feel they are, quote-unquote, walking on eggshells, and even dread checking their phone messages. Obviously, to even hope to be helpful to patients like this, therapists must struggle to control their own emotions. Psychoanalysis often is criticized for its allegedly low or even zero demonstrable cure rate, and for the fact that treatment can last for many years and perhaps never end. But recent research gave it a major and, to some observers, surprising boost. A thorough summary of 23 studies involving 1,053 patients concluded that long-term psychoanalytic therapy was more effective than shorter forms of treatment, especially for what were called quote-unquote complex mental disorders, end quote. Indeed, patients who participated in long-term psychoanalysis fared better than 96% of the patients treated by other means. This impressive finding does not mean that psychoanalysis always works, or that it is appropriate for everybody. As one psychiatrist wrote, Thanks to decades of clinical study, analysts are able to assess which patients are able to do better with medication or other forms of therapy and which are likely to benefit more from analysis. Within the group for whom analysis is suitable, patients often make gains unachievable with other treatments. Despite this recent attempt at resolution, the argument over efficacy of psychoanalytic psychotherapy continues. Late in his own career, Freud began to see the whole issue as beside the point. After 41 years of medical activities, my self-knowledge tells me that I have not been a physician in the proper sense. My real interests are the events of the history of man, the mutual influences between man's nature, the development of culture, and those residues of prehistoric events of which religion is the foremost representation. Studies which originate with psychoanalysis but go way beyond it. In the end, Freud was surprisingly uninterested in psychoanalysis as a medical or therapeutic technique, an attitude that some modern psychotherapists share. Instead, he saw its real importance as a tool for understanding human nature and culture. Psychoanalytic theory, a critique. Throughout this chapter, I've tried to sell you Freud. Psychoanalytic theory is dramatic and insightful, it is comprehensive, and it, is, and it even has a certain elegant beauty. Having said that, I still must warn you against taking Freud too seriously. When a student asks me, what happens to sexual development if a boy is raised by his mother in a single-parent family? Recall footnote 20, which I didn't read. I really want to reply, hey, don't take this stuff so seriously. Freud has a neat theory, and it's fun to play around with, but don't start using it to evaluate your life. Psychoanalytic theory is far from being received truth. So, having praised Freud, let me now bury him for a bit. Psychoanalytic theory has at least five important shortcomings. Excessive complexity. First of all, Freud's theory is highly complex, to put it mildly. 
A basic principle of science, sometimes called Occam's razor, is that less is more. All things being equal, the simplest explanation is the best. Suppose you want to explain why boys take on many of the values and attitudes of their fathers. One possibility is that they look for guides in the world around them and choose the most obvious and prominent. Ford's theory, however, says that boys sexually desire their mothers, but they worry that their fathers will be jealous and castrate them in punishment, so they identify with their fathers in order to vicariously enjoy the mother and lessen the threat from the father. This is intriguing, and maybe it is even correct, but is it the simplest possible explanation? No way. Even modern theorists sympathetic to psychoanalysis have moved away from this complicated story. Case Study Method a second tenet of science is that data must be public. The basis of one's conclusions must be laid out so that other scientists can evaluate the evidence together. Classic psychoanalytic theory never did this, and the neo-Freudians and object relations theorists have generally followed suit. Their theorizing is based on analysts, including Freud's, introspections, and on insights drawn from single therapeutic cases, which are, as a matter of ethics and law, confidential. Freud himself complained that proof of his theory lay in the details of case studies that he could never reveal because of the need to protect his patients' privacy. The fact that this case study method is uncheckable means that it may be biased, this bias may arise out of what psychoanalysts and their patients, such as Freud's turn-of-the-century Viennese patients, are like. Or perhaps the theorist misremembers or misreports what happens. No one can ever be sure. Psychoanalytic theory's traditionally dismissive attitude towards requests for empirical proof could be summarized by the slogan, Take it or leave it. Vague Definitions Another conventional scientific standard is the operational definition. A scientific concept should be, con should be defined in terms of the operations or procedures by which it can be identified and measured. Psychoanalytic theory rarely does this. Take the idea of psychic energy. I mentioned that a bright student once asked me what units it was measured in. There are no units, of course, and it is not entirely clear what Freud meant by the term. Was he being literal? or did he intend energy as a metaphor? Exactly how much psychic energy, what percentage, say, need be left behind at the oral stage to develop an oral character? As repressions accumulate, at what point will one run out of energy for daily living? Psychoanalytic theory does not even come close to providing specific answers to these questions. Untestability Freud's theory is also untestable. A scientific theory should be disconfirmable, that is, it should imply a set of observations or results that, if found, would show it to be false. This is the difference between religion and science. There is no conceivable set of observations or results that would prove that God does not exist. God might always just be hiding. Therefore, the existence of God is not a scientific issue. In the same way, there is no set of observations that psychoanalytic theory cannot explain after the fact. Because no experiment can prove the theory wrong, it is unscientific. Some people have argued that perhaps it should be considered a religion. 
I was literally thinking that as I was reading it. That's crazy. Still, no single experiment is sufficient to prove or disprove any complex theory. The theory of evolution is not testable in this manner. For example, even though scientists almost universally accept it. So the real question is not whether psychoanalysis is testable in a strict sense, but whether the theory leads to hypotheses that can be tested individually. In the case of psychoanalysis, the best answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no. Sexism. Much of a woman's life, according to Freud, is based on her struggle to come to terms with the tragedy that she is not male. Psychoanalytic theory, but here's the thing. In those days, with culturally speaking and with society, the female did not have a whole lot of power. The, you know what I'm saying? So maybe that was kind of a tragedy, right? I mean, may, maybe he was on something. Maybe he didn't mean like that she was not biologically, uh, uh, that maybe he didn't mean she was biologically inferior necessarily, but look at the, uh, look at how women were treated and, and how little options they had, how not really part of the workforce they were at the time. Or maybe they were. That was right. No, it was right. It was like right before the world wars and stuff, right? And during. I don't know. I know that women started to gain their independence in the wars because they could start working because they had to. Because the men were overseas fighting. Anyway, what the fuck? Uh, on her struggle. Yeah, I don't know that that's sexist necessarily. If if it in those days maybe it was kind of a tragedy. It could be felt as a tragedy to not be born male and to be born with like less options and you got a family that's like you're going to marry so and so. It's like I don't want to. Psychoanalytic theory is sexist. Even modern writers who are highly sympathetic to Freud admit it. Freud considers men the norm and bases his theories on their psychology. He then considers women when he considers them at all as aberrations or deviations from the male model. The side effects of being a woman in psychoanalytic theory include having less self-esteem, less creativity, and less moral fiber. Much of a woman's life, according to Freud, is based on her struggle to come to terms with the tragedy that she is not a man. If that's not sexist, then I don't know what is. I don't know, man. Less self-esteem. That could be culturally... and you know, in the family. That could be influenced socially. Less creativity. Hmm. And less moral fiber. Yeah, I would say those things are a little bit sexist, but the tragedy of not being a man, I'm going to stick by my guns and say, maybe, you know, I haven't read Freud or anything, but maybe you didn't mean that so much biologically. Although, even biologically, you could say, like, men are maybe more strong and stuff and more powerful and can overpower a woman, and maybe that would make a woman feel... Um, the, like it's a tragedy to be born a woman to be born weaker than her male counterpart no periods no pregnancy maybe he just means like the tragedy of being a woman like the pain and and weaker just the tragedy of being a woman especially when you incorporate the the socio-cultural factors that were not so pleasant towards women like less rights in those days you know it's not that sexist i think but maybe he was, and I'm just, I don't know. Why study Freud? So, with all these acknowledged problems, why study Freud? Several reasons. One is that Freud and the tradition he initiated acknowledge and indeed focus on ideas that are underemphasized or even ignored elsewhere. 
Freud was right that people have conflicting motives and that sorting them out can be a source of confusion and anxiety. He was right that sex and aggression are powerful and mysterious forces in psychological life. And he was right that childhood experiences shape adult personality and behavior and that a child's relationships with his or her parents in particular form a template that is a basis of relationships throughout life. As I hope you have noticed while reading this chapter, psychoanalytic theory is full of insights, big and small, that the rest of psychology has tended to neglect and sometimes completely overlook. Moreover, psychoanalysis continues to profoundly influence psychology and modern conceptions of the mind. Even though few modern research psychologists, even those who teach personality psychology, consider themselves Freudians, for example, you might have noticed a certain general resemblance between the currently accepted story of personality development, summarized in chapter 7, and Freud's theory. When you notice this resemblance, you should note also that Freud's theory came first. More obviously, Freud continues to influence the practice of psychotherapy. One survey indicated that about 75% of practicing psychotherapists rely to some degree on psychoanalytic ideas. For example, even many psychotherapists who consider themselves non-Freudians practice the talking cure, the idea that talking about a problem helps, free association, encouraging the client to say whatever comes to mind, and transference, building an emotional relationship with the client to promote healing. According to legend, Freud also originated the practice of billing clients for their missed appointments. Moreover, many of Freud's ideas have entered popular culture and provide a common and helpful part of how people think and talk about each other, in ways they might not always recognize as Freudian. For instance, suppose you give somebody an expensive present. The next time you visit him or her, the present is nowhere in sight. Whatever happened to... you ask. Oh, your friend replies nonchalantly. It broke so I threw it away. How does this response make you feel? If it makes you feel bad, and of course it does, one reason might be that you have made a Freudian interpretation of your friend's behavior. He or she has constant, he or she has unconscious hostility toward you without quite realizing that you have done so. Sometimes everyday thought is even more explicitly Freudian. Have you ever heard somebody hypothesize that She only goes out with that older guy because he's a father figure, or he's all messed up because of the way his parents treated him when he was little, or he never dates because his entire soul goes into programming his computer, or she's got too much invested in him psychologically to break up with him now. These are all Freudian interpretations. So it is probably the case that you knew a good deal of psychoanalytic theory even before you read this chapter. As a result, Freud's ideas do not always seem as original as they should. There is an old joke about the person who went to see one of Shakespeare's plays but walked out halfway through. It was full of cliches, he complained. Of course, much of Shakespeare is full of cliches because so many of his lines, to be or not to be, have made it into everyday speech. Some of Freud's most original ideas might sound mundane after all these years for the same reason. A further consideration is that Freudian thought has undergone something of a revival within research psychology, and in 2006, more than 50 years after his death, Freud even appeared on the cover of Newsweek. Psychologists continue to do research and write articles on defense mechanisms, transference, unconscious thought, 
and other classically Freudian topics. Some of these researchers vehemently deny that they are Freudians themselves, even when researching topics that seem psychoanalytic. Do they protest too much? Perhaps the most important way in which Freud continues to be influential is that his theory remains the only complete theory of personality ever proposed. Freud knew what he wanted to explain. Aggression, love, sexuality, development, energy, conflict, neurosis, dreams, humor, accidents, and the list goes on. His theory offers an account for all these aspects of psychology. Regardless of whether he is right about every one of them, or even none of them, the theory does map out all the important questions for personality psychology. In science, the most important thing is not answering questions, but figuring out the right questions to ask. In this regard, Freud's theory of personality is a triumph that may stand for all time. Wrapping it up. Summary. Unlike many approaches to personality, the psychoanalytic approach concentrates on the cases where the cause of behavior is mysterious and hidden. Freud himself. Freud was a practicing psychotherapist who developed his ideas from the cases he saw as well as from introspection and his broad knowledge of literature, art, and culture. One of his grateful patients dubbed his technique the talking cure. Key ideas of psychoanalysis. Psychoanalytic theory is based on a, no on a small number of key ideas, including psychic determinism, the mind's three-part internal structure, id, ego, and superego, psychic conflict, and mental energy. Controversy. Psychoanalysis has been controversial throughout its history, although the nature of the controversy has changed with the times. Freud was one of the geniuses of the 20th century. Psychoanalysis, life, and death. Freud's psychoanalytic theory posits two fundamental motives, a life force, libido, and a drive toward death and destruction, Thanatos. Reminds me of Thanos, the uh, X-Men villain. Libido produces psychic energy, and the story of psychosexual development is the story of how this energy is focused in different areas over the course of four stages of life. Psychosexual development. Follow the money. Each developmental stage has a physical focus, a psychological theme, and an adult character type that results if the stage of development does not go well. The main theme for the oral stage is dependency. For the anal stage, it is obedience and self-control. For the phallic stage, it is gender identity and sexuality. And for the genital stage, it is maturity, in which one ideally learns to balance love and work. The different structures of the mind form during progression through these developmental stages. The newborn baby is all id. The ego develops during the anal stage as a result of experiences with frustration and delay. And the superego develops during the phallic stage as a result of identifications with significant people, especially the parents. Fixation occurs when an individual gets, to some degree, psychologically stuck in a stage of development. Regression is movement backward from a more advanced psychological stage to an earlier one. Thinking and Consciousness Primary process thinking assumed by Freud to be present in babies and in the unconscious part of the adult mind is unconscious thought characterized by displacement, symbolism, and an irrational drive toward immediate gratification. Secondary process thinking, which develops as the child moves toward adulthood, is ordinary, rational, conscious thought. 
The three layers of consciousness are the conscious mind, the pre-conscious, and the unconscious. Freud thought the conscious mind was by far the smallest of the three. Parapraxies. Forbidden impulses and unconscious thoughts can be revealed through parapraxies, or Freudian slips. These include memory lapses and unintentional actions. Anxiety and defense. Anxiety can originate in the real world or in inner psychic conflict, such as produced by an impulse of the id that the ego or superego try to combat. The ego uses several defense mechanisms to protect against the conscious experience of excessive anxiety and associated emotions, such as shame or guilt. These defense mechanisms include denial, repression, reaction formation, projection, rationalization, intellectualization, displacement, and sublimation. Use of these defenses can reduce anxiety in the short run, but in the long run can produce problems in understanding and dealing with reality. Psychoanalysis as a therapy and as a route toward understanding. Psychoanalytic therapy is performed through techniques such as dream analysis and free association in the context of a therapeutic alliance between patient and therapist. The goal is to bring the unconscious thoughts that are the source of an individual's problems into the open, so the conscious rational mind can deal with them. Although psychoanalysis has become notorious for its length and allegedly low cure rate, recent research has provided surprising support for its efficacy. Freud himself might not have cared much. He once wrote that he was interested in psychoanalysis more as a tool for understanding human nature than as a medical technique. Psychoanalytic Theory, a Critique Psychoanalytic theory has been criticized for its excessive complexity, its reliance on the case study method rather than on experimentation, the poor definitions of some of its concepts, its untestability, and its sexism. Why study Freud? Nonetheless, psychoanalysis is important because of its contributions to psychotherapy, in the form of talk therapy, for example, its effect on popular culture, the increasing amount of research it has generated in recent years, and because it is com a complete theory of personality that raises questions other areas of psychology do not address. Think about it. Do you hear Freudian ideas used in the ways people talk about each other? Can you think of any examples beyond those presented in this chapter? Has anything happened recently in the news or in your life that seems best explained from a psychoanalytic perspective? Have you heard about Freud or psychoanalytic ideas in any other courses you have taken? Which ones? When your instructors in other psychology courses have mentioned Freud, have they expressed a favorable or hostile attitude? On what grounds? How about your instructors in other fields, such as English? Do you think toilet training is a big deal for children? Does the way it is handled have an important consequence for psychosexual development? Research in political science shows that most young adults belong to the same political party as their parents. How would Freud explain this? Do you think this explanation is correct, and can you think of other possible reasons? Can you think of any oral, anal, phallic, or genital characters among the people you know? Without naming names, what are they like? How do you think they got this way? Do you think dreams reveal anything about the mind of the dreamer? Have you ever learned something about yourself by analyzing a dream? If you had a psychological problem, would you go to a psychoanalyst? Why or why not? Can you be anxious about something without knowing what it is? Or does that strike you as a nonsensical idea? 
What examples of the various defense mechanisms in your own behavior or that of others can you come up with? Do you think Freudian psychoanalysis should be considered scientific? Does the answer to this question matter? Colleagues of the author have suggested more than once that the chapters on Freud and psychoanalysis should be deleted because the theory is wrong and out of date. Do you agree? Well, I could read through the key terms, but I don't feel like it. That's it for chapter 10. If you found this helpful or useful, just share it with somebody. And if not, sorry for wasting your time. Okay, bye.